Hi, everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again, a very important, very unusual episode of There and Back Again. It is Sunday evening, and we're about to finish The Hobbit. I'm Alistair Stevens, and tonight we are going to discuss the last two chapters of The Hobbit. We are going to follow Bilbo all the way back from the mountain to the hill. We're going to track his return journey, though not before we conclude some final heartbreaking business with the dwarves. I am very, very glad to have you all here with me tonight for this particularly unusual uh, episode of TABA. There's there's some sadness here in the YouTube chat, and I'm not going to lie, as I was preparing today's lecture, I felt a little sadness too. Um, When I sat down to begin work on There and Back Again, when I was beginning to frame it, it was only ever a Lord of the Rings series. I was just going to do the Lord of the Rings and obviously talk about The Hobbit in the same way as I've talked about The Silmarillion and The Unfinished Tales and the rest of the fringes of Tolkien's corpus during this series. But as I began to really put the pieces together for the discussion of The Lord of the Rings, I realized that it felt disingenuous. It felt somehow inauthentic to talk about The Lord of the Rings without talking about this book, talking about The Hobbit in all of its surprising, sometimes, complexity and surprising, sometimes, simplicity. This is a book that sits oddly alongside The Lord of the Rings. I can't think of two other books which are so closely tied, which are both so beloved in in general culture, but which are themselves so completely, willfully different. I mean, you can track the difference between let's say, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. I mean, there's an evolution there. Those two books are pretty different, but they encompass nothing like the the the, the disparate virtues of both The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So while I, I was kind of doing this out of, in part, a sense of obligation and, of course, a sincere love of the book, but in terms of there and back again as a series, it felt something of an obligation to discuss The Hobbit first, I have really loved this discussion, and it is with some sadness that we come to the end of this book. I feel as though I'm going to be looking back on The Hobbit more fondly moving into The Lord of the Rings than I otherwise would, and I hope that that is true for all of you, too. I'm, I'm really looking forward to starting the uh, the Lord of the Rings discussion, and and wow, that's that's a tonal shift right there. And we start The Lord of the Rings at its softest, its fluffiest, its most hobbity. Where that book goes will astonish you. If, you. if you've never read it before, if you haven't read it closely, that book will astonish you. We start in the most Hobbit-compatible space that we possibly can, and yet even then, there is a marked difference in tone and in in in, in voice, I think, between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. So I, I'm really looking forward to tracking that transition in the weeks to come. I should say right up front, actually, let's do the quick scheduling announcement. Uh, this is the 13th session in there and back again. It is only the 12th session that we're doing on The Hobbit, technically, because we opened with On Fairy Stories, but it is still the 13th session, and 13s are unlucky, as we know from the pages of The Hobbit. So I've decided to add an extra uh, Hobbit session into the discussion here. I talked a little about this in the last session that we had. Uh, I'm going to add an extra session before we get to The Fellowship of the Ring, in which we will discuss the quest of Erebor. The quest of Erebor was a basically a rewritten third-person account of Bilbo's adventures in The Hobbit. A version of it appears in the appendices of The Lord of the Rings. A better version of it, certainly by Tolkien standards, I would say a fuller version of it, appears in... Let me grab my copy of 
Unfinished Tales. Uh, we're going to discuss that. It's not long. It's only about maybe uh, 20, 25 pages, something like that, even the version in, in Unfinished Tales. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, the place, therefore, of the quest of Erebor in the context of a larger world to prepare ourselves for, for transitioning into that larger world in the Fellowship of the Ring. And then we're also going to take some general questions, some general discussion topics that you guys have uh, supplied me with over the course of the last 12 weeks. And of course, any questions that might arise from tonight's reading and are, are retrospective on the book as a whole. So that is going to take place, not this coming week, I'm taking this coming Thursday off. So the Hobbit Quest of Erebor discussion will take place on April 20th. Then we'll begin the Fellowship of the Ring on April 27th. The schedule that is available from the show notes of every single uh, episode of There and Back Again, and which I have just pasted into the YouTube chat, will reflect this. That is now an up-to-date schedule as far as I know. And don't worry, though, it feels as though we're, we're crossing some kind of threshold because we're coming to the end of The Hobbit and, and we've had some discussion now. My proposed schedule format will uh, will give us 76 episodes of There and Back Again before we're done. So we're only on number 13. We've got a long, long ways to go. The road, as they say, goes ever on and on. <laughs> Yay, extra Tolkien, says Angela. Good, absolutely. Is the unfinished tales the same as the Book of Lost Tales? Uh, no, it's not the same as the Book of Lost Tales. That's that's it's a different uh, it's a different volume. Yes, burglar session. Good. Yeah. No. Exactly. That's going to be our burglar session. That's fantastic. That is our lucky number burglar Bilbo session. It's going to be just the best, the best discussion. So a little obligatory business before we get into it. Though I'm sure you've all figured it out by now. I don't know how many sessions I'm going to do this little particular part of the intro, but hey. You guys can leave comments and questions in the YouTube chat window right here alongside the YouTube video. If you were listening to the podcast version of this after the fact, then you should have been here for the live one. It's super fun. Come hang out with us in the YouTube chat. It's really good. But if you have thoughts or if you're here live and don't feel like using the YouTube chat, then you can use Twitter using the hashtag tab again, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N. I will see that tonight, tomorrow, all through the week. I just keep uh, a little tweet deck uh, tab open with that right here so that I can uh, keep up with the conversation, which is always rich and edifying and wonderful. Let's get to it then. Though before we um, before we look ahead, I kind of want to look backward a little bit because I received some really interesting correspondence on the heels of the last session. A surprising amount of correspondence, considering that as of this live session, because of some technical hitches over at Point North Media, as of this live session, the podcast for the previous session only dropped this morning. I know a number of dedicated listeners have already downloaded it, have already devoured it, but. Uh, not the full number yet. So I'm rather surprised to see the amount of correspondence that I've received regarding Bilbo's use of the Arkenstone. When he decides to surrender it to Bard and Thranduil to try to avert what is evidently imminent disaster, the, he receives some criticism from readers of the book. And I think, well, I was going to say, I think more uh, modern readers of the book are perhaps more inclined to be critical than contemporary readers of the book. But... I, I think there is a quality to the criticism that is subtly different, but nonetheless, that criticism remains. Though I describe the action in heroic terms, including the pain caused to Bilbo personally by the loss of the Arkenstone, and the narration is very quick, it's very fast, you don't necessarily catch it every time you read the book, but, but Bilbo is clearly torn by his desire to, or by his decision to give away the Arkenstone. We're, we're told at that point that that. Some of the dwarves have 
been shamed by the treatment of Bilbo. We're told, or, or we're actually told immediately after that, that some of the dwarves are shamed by the treatment of Bilbo. Thranduil says famously during this part of the book, long will I tarry ere I begin this war for gold. We're seeing some resistance in the cast in general to dragon sickness. And my primary defense of Bilbo's decision to give up the Arkenstone is not that it is ineffectual. It is, broadly speaking, ineffectual. But it does indicate the sole marked resistance to the dragon sickness that we see in the pages of this book. Bilbo is the only one who actually gives up something. He gives up some element of the treasure. Though it is, of course, the case that surrendering the Arkenstone only pours gasoline on the fire. It only raises the stakes. Arguably, it only forces Thorin's hand. Rather than avoiding bloodshed, it may be the case that Bilbo's decision to surrender the Arkenstone to Bard actually precipitates what would have been the Battle of Three Armies. It actually, it actually transforms the Siege of Erebor into a more urgent and, and, and um, savage kind of, of warfare. Because yes, Dian's troops would have arrived from the Iron Hills, but there could have been a siege, counter-siege kind of situation. It could have been something of a stalemate Certainly by the time that Thorin learns that Bard has the Arkenstone and learns that he was betrayed by Bilbo, he's disinclined toward rationality. That's all absolutely true, but it does nothing to detract from the fact that Bilbo is the one to stand against the dragon sickness. Bilbo is the one to, to generously give away, to, to magnanimously give away his part of the horde. And it's clear, even as he's doing it, that he believes he is surrendering any right to any part of the dragon's horde now. All of this, this entire journey has been for nothing as far as Bilbo is concerned. So he gives up the Arkenstone because it is the right thing to do, and in so doing, resists the lure of of the dragon sickness. In fact, it occurs to me that in doing so, Bilbo doesn't just demonstrate magnanimity, he actually demonstrates precisely the kind of magnanimity that we are looking for from Thorin, the kind of, of action that we associate with the good kings of old. Thorin is supposed to use the treasure of the Lonely Mountain to, to draw together these disparate cultures, to create a new alliance, to improve everyone's lives. That is what good kings do with treasure. Thorin is resolutely not doing that, but Bilbo is. And that's not, I think, nothing. The second way in which the giving of the Arkenstone, I think, connects with Bilbo's deepest virtues, with, with, with the deepest character traits that Bilbo possesses, is perhaps a little more subtle, but also, I think, a little more straightforward. He is a baggins of bag end, and ultimately, he expects people to behave in a rational, reasonable, collaborative manner. Now, we, from our privileged position, might not expect Bard and Thorne to negotiate a peace after the Arkenstone is turned over into the, the Dragon Slayer's care, but Bilbo, it would seem, believes that this will unfold as if it were a matter between hobbits, as though Bard and Thorin are going to sit down with some seed cakes and tea and just talk the whole thing out, that everyone will leave the negotiating table believing that they got the better end of the bargain, believing that, that they have received everything that they wanted and not given up anything too much. Bilbo's essential civility here may be violently misplaced, is demonstrably violently misplaced. It is not perhaps a wise act for him to surrender the Arkenstone in this way. But it is a good act, and it does speak to that central civility. Even here, and we talked a little last time about 
about the, the meshing of Baggins and Took, about the, the very fact that Bilbo is there trying to negotiate a peace, trying to take the, the practical, pragmatic approach to this, this threat of imminent warfare, but also simultaneously talking with a dragon slayer and the king of the woodland elves. This is proof that, that Baggins and Took are working now together to try and accomplish a greater goal. And while we might not ultimately think much of that goal, while we might not ultimately think much of the way that Bilbo goes about it, A, it's kind of difficult to see what other option he had, and B, the fact that it is unsuccessful doesn't mean that it's an unvirtuous act. Success and failure do not define morality. They do not define virtue. Bilbo does what he believes to be the right thing for good reasons which spring forth from the very core of his character. So while I am completely receptive to the argument that actually Bilbo doesn't really accomplish anything by surrendering the Arkenstone, if anything, he makes it worse. He makes it much, much much worse. And Bilbo is kind of responsible for the Battle of Three Armies that is about to begin, at least in this circumstance, under these conditions, he's, he's kind of responsible. At the same time, I find it very difficult to, to look critically on Bilbo's decision, to look critically on, on the choices that he has made. I think that he is exemplifying Baggins' virtue by trying to negotiate in the first place, by exhibiting self-sacrifice in the second place, and by trusting in the civility, the responsibility, the respectability, the, the inclination toward collaboration that he, he would expect at home and, and would hope to find here too. From my perspective, it is the case that Thorin and Bard and Thranduil to a lesser extent, but still a marked extent, kind of fail to live up to the example set by Bilbo. In this instance, Thorin, worst of all, of course, Thorin is in absolutely the grip of the dragon sickness. He is by far the, the most uh, wrongheaded of the bunch here and pays ultimately a significant price for that, the most significant price for that. But Bard is clearly suspicious too. That's a, that's a trait that we associate with dragon sickness. And the Thranduil is professing his, his neutrality in this matter, particularly with regard to the Horde. Well, he's almost too specific, isn't he? It's almost a suspiciously specific denial. He's almost saying, look, I'm just, I'm just here. I'm certainly not going to start a war over some gold. I mean, that would be crazy. By the way, where is the gold? The dragon sickness is leeching out across the desolation of Smaug, which, as we've said before, may not be in any way a coincidence. Those two factors may be inextricably linked. Yeah, good. Uh, Rachel says, I don't agree that he's responsible. He would have fought anyway. Yes, the, 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 I guess the defining line that I was drawing there was, was to say that fighting as they do under these circumstances is more specifically Bilbo's fault. I can envision... I'm having a little trouble picturing Thorin as we see him prior to the surrendering of the Arkenstone ordering Dain into an all-out assault on the combined armies of, of the Men of Asgoroth and the Elves of the Woodland Realm. I can see a kind of bitter stalemate unfolding. And as we know, winter is coming on. So it's not as though these armies can remain here indefinitely. And goodness knows, it's not as though Thorin and the company of dwarves can remain within the Lonely Mountain indefinitely. No one has any food. No one has any supplies. It's possible that there could have been, I'm sure, a disastrous resolution. But it would perhaps have been a different resolution had the circumstance continued. So that aside, though, this specific war at this specific moment is a fault of Bilbo's. And I think that there may even be a catastrophic explanation for all of this, because, of course, it is 
the arrival of the goblins that interrupts the battle of three armies. But I wonder what the situation would have been if pitched battle had not been about to commence, if if the blood had not been hot, if if muscles had not been afire with, with righteous fury, if they hadn't just been about to start fighting. You know, we're told that the first arrows are, are, are loose, we're about to begin. And at fever pitch, I wonder if there would have been a different response to the emergence of the goblins. Not a terribly different response, I'm sure, but we are certainly, you know, the the the, the blood fever is upon us here. Um, good, good. Okay, let's take a look. Um, he said as he rearranges his windows frantically trying to catch up. Yes, good. Uh, Hobbit is a burglar, never made good sense to me. Fair, fair. Though Gandalf will give us a hint right at the very end of the book, right in the last slide that we're going to read tonight uh, about the nature of, of Bilbo's role in general. Yes, yes, good. Um, let me see here. And, and yes, kind of foreshadowing that is an anticipation of this, the reason why Gandalf chooses a hobbit to be, of all things, a burglar. In um, Tolkien's short story, Leaf by Niggle, which is far and away the most uh, directly analogous piece of work that, that Tolkien ever wrote, Tolkien, of course, famously disliked analogy. He does not like the idea that stories are, are puzzle boxes to be unlocked by understanding, that there's not some coded message contained within the story that when you are given the necessary piece of information, you can suddenly understand. He didn't like that as an approach to storytelling. He thought that was thin. He thought it was facile. But he was not above using analogy, using this kind of very direct, you know, representational metaphor when necessary. And one of the stories that he wrote was a story called Leaf by Niggle, which is basically an exploration of creativity in general, artistry in general, but but in a broader sense, if you've read some of Tolkien's work, a kind of storytelling. Um, and there is a refrain in Leaf by Niggle, which I think is completely applicable here. It could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Gandalf could have picked someone else. He could have picked one of the men of Bree, he could have picked an elf for this task. I mean, he could have picked someone else. He picked Bilbo Baggins. And it seems from the beginning of the book that it is almost uh, it is almost an instinct toward mischief that guides Gandalf in that decision. And yet, Bilbo is exactly what they need, exactly when they need him. He rises time and time again to meet the challenge. And partly, of course, that is the virtue of being the protagonist. But in a broader sense, I think, Yes, Bilbo's choice is is provident. Um, Bilbo's choice is perhaps indicative of this this wind of good fortune that has crossed the land, or of this eucatastrophic impulse. So, did Gandalf choose mischievously? Possibly, but that is not incompatible with Gandalf's choice being somehow guided, somehow the the right choice. Yeah, yeah, um, and certainly yes. Hmm. I guess to carry that in the next logical step, yes, uh, a dwarven burglar would not have given up the Arkenstone. Uh, an elven burglar? Well, it's difficult to see that an elven burglar would actually have worked at all. A man would not have given up the Arkenstone. Men are, in fact, notoriously, uh, and I'm using man here in the Tolkien sense, not in the gendered sense. It could, of course, have been a woman, except that would have, have radically changed the shape and the tone of The Hobbit because of the almost complete absence of women in The Hobbit. Uh, it would have been very nice, in fact, had we had a, a human female thief of the, I don't know, chaotic good persuasion uh, accompanying the party here. But, but uh, men are notoriously susceptible to dragon sickness, which is one of the great arguments why, uh, to actually to domination of all kinds. Men are 
pretty weak as the races go, in fact. Um, it would have been inconsistent for a human uh, thief, a human burglar, to have resisted the the dragon sickness and actually surrendered the Arkenstone, I think. Certainly, along, uh, according to Tolkien's original conception. We're going to talk a lot more about the fallibility of man when we get into the pages of The Lord of the Rings. Just you wait. Excellent. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Bilbo can't be held responsible for Thorin's failure of virtue, says Kate. No, that's absolutely true. I, um, Thorin is the problem here. Thorin is behaving shamefully here. It, it's not that specifically. It's that... Again, I applaud Bilbo's decision, even while acknowledging that the outcome, even if we don't place responsibility for the Battle of Three Armies at his feet, we can still observe that, well, it was never going to work. You know, I, I can't imagine a circumstance under which Bard and Thorne could actually have parlayed this out, could actually have, have reached a, a peaceful point of mediation here and avoided bloodshed. We can see that from our privileged position. Bilbo possibly can see that less clearly from within the pages of The Hobbit. And certainly his Hobbit instincts, his understanding of civility, that's going to change his approach too. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, Let me see here. We're keeping Skeepa up. She almost went to bed, but she's joining us here this evening. Thank you so much, Skeepa. Um, Andrea asks, is it Bilbo or is it Bilbo the Hobbit? Is it Bilbo as Hobbit or Burglar that is important? Ultimately, it's Bilbo as Hobbit. Bilbo as burglar accomplishes modest things, but he doesn't change the course of of the story. Bilbo the Hobbit does, yes. Yeah. Kate says Gandalf is the only great figure to pay any attention to Hobbits. Perhaps he just wanted to give them a chance to shine. I like that very much, actually. Yes. Uh, Gandalf sees the, the Hobbits as his pet project for low these many centuries, and he thinks it's about time. A hobbit stepped up, and then everyone's going to be like, oh, hobbits, hobbits are so interesting. Hobbits are so cool. I really like them. And Gandalf can smoke his pipe and say, ah, I knew hobbits before they were cool. Yes, I kind of like that. Good. Yes, yes, yes. Bryce says, Tolkien's dislike of allegory is what I love the most about him. The story is what is most important, not necessarily the, applicab- the applicability, excuse me, which can still be drawn from the story. Yes, good. Good. And Robert asks an interesting question. I wonder if Tolkien, had he a dozen more years or so, would have elaborated the reasoning behind Hobbit's preeminent places in these two books, very off from the Silmarillion. Off from the Silmarillion in terms of Arda's internal history, but absolutely of a piece with the Silmarillion in terms of the core thesis here. Um, uh, Tolkien's belief that, that... the great will falter, that that power will always corrupt, that ultimately every power will turn to darkness. That That is, is so deep in the bedrock of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings that it's almost impossible to talk about either book without observing that. He finds virtue here, or ultimately will find virtue in The Lord of the Rings and kind of retroactively, as he integrates The Hobbit with that world, will retroactively find virtue in The Hobbit 2 in the very small and creates the smallest folk, physically diminutive, but also socially, culturally diminutive. You know, the hobbits are not expansive. They are simple, rustic, agrarian, feudalistic folks. And that works really nicely for them. That, that's, that's just really good. It's good to be a hobbit. And when you are caught up in great events, your diminutive stature, both, you know, uh, narratively, dramatically, and personally, means that you are more inclined to do good. You are less inclined to be corrupted. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, 
I'm getting a question about something behind me, but I have scrolled past it and now I can't find the original question. If there's a question about something behind me, just uh, let me know. Yes, good, good. Um, Smaug had no idea what a hobbit was by smell. Any chance Gandalf knew that and factored it in, asks Jean. Um, no. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe, but no. I would have expected, had that been the case, for there to be some kind of acknowledgement of that within the frame of the text, and there just isn't. And also, Smaug's inability to recognize a creature does not necessarily mean that Smaug will not kill that creature. Smaug would have killed uh, would have killed Bilbo if he had seen him. Without Bilbo's invisibility ring, for which Gandalf could not have planned, then Bilbo would have faced a very different experience, I think, within the Lonely Mountain. Yeah. Good. Uh, Lady Sorka says, I like to pretend some of the dwarves are female dwarves. With everything we know about dwarves and how personality-less they are, there's nothing saying they couldn't be. Yes, uh, a third of all dwarves are female dwarves, we are told. Um, but they are so physically similar in, in dress and in appearance to male dwarves that anyone but a dwarf would struggle to recognize them as such. So... It is entirely possible. Uh, take your pick. Pick four of the dwarves that uh, that don't have uh, gendered pronouns attached to them and just assume that they're women. I, I kind of like that, actually. I I'm kind of into that idea. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, okay. We're talking a long time uh, in, in this preparatory way without, uh, <laughs> without actually getting to the meat of it. And I'm just realizing how much I haven't scrolled past. Okay, good. I'm catching up from questions from 20 minutes ago, I'm sure. Yes, yes. Um, let me see here. Hobbits aren't, oh, uh, behind me, Black Pearl. Oh, uh, no, it's not the Black Pearl. It's uh, all of this, uh, the pirate paraphernalia behind me is uh, associated with the Common Room Radio podcast, uh, Fathoms Deep, which is dedicated to the Star's original, uh, the Star's original series, Black Sails, which has just finished its run and is genuinely extraordinary. I share the studio with uh, some very talented podcasters who are into other things. I have actually appeared on a couple of episodes of, of Fathoms Deep and uh, uh, one episode of Fathoms Deep, actually to date, but I'm going to appear on another one pretty soon. And I can't wait to talk about it because Black Sails is great and pirates are cool, y'all. Okay. All right. Let's skip all of this <laughs> and actually get into our discussion because, of course, we have so much to talk about. And you guys... I guarantee, I guarantee that I'm going to weep when I read The Lord of the Rings. There is a passage that I'm sure you know, I'm sure you can anticipate it, that will absolutely reduce me to tears near the end of The Return of the King. That's totally fine. I'm prepared for it. I'm ready for it. We can do this thing. There's like a 40% chance that I'm just going to weep on the second slide tonight. So let's spend a little while on this. The first slide, Bilbo awakening after the battle. When Bilbo came to himself, he was literally by himself. He was lying on the flat stones of Raven Hill and no one was near. A cloudless day, but cold, was broad above him. He was shaking and as chilled as stone, but his head burned with fire. Now I wonder what has happened, he said to himself. At any rate, I am not yet one of the fallen heroes, but I suppose there was still time enough for that. He sat up painfully. Looking into the valley, he could see no living goblins. After a while, as his head cleared a little, he thought he could see elves moving in the rocks below. He rubbed his eyes. Surely there was a camp still in the plain some distance off, and there was a coming and going about the gate? Dwarves seemed to be busy removing the wall, but all was deadly still. There was no call and no echo of a song. Sorrow seemed to be in the air. Victory after all, I suppose, he said, feeling his aching head. Well, it seems a very gloomy business. The uh, minor 
observation that we might make here as a means of differentiating this book from the later adaptations of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit 2 is that Bilbo is at this point invisible because he is at this point wearing his magical ring and is somehow unaware of that fact. There is no desaturated rushing and ominous whispering accompanying his invisibility. That is not a part of this story just yet. Right now, when Bilbo is invisible, it's impossible for him to know he is invisible unless he's paying very close attention, I guess, to the, the his own sense of his physicality, I suppose. So that's a minor point of observation. But here, what I really want to talk about is, of course, this ominous sense of awakening. He wakes from sleep and looks down upon the world below him and is able to identify those key features of victory, the dismantling of the gate, dwarves working, elves patrolling. The battle is over and the good guys seem to have won, and yet there is something somber in the air. No songs, no calls, something has happened. And the way that we turn from the ferocity, that the, the height of dramatic action at the end of the last chapter into this somber and solemn moment of, of removed observation here, as, as Bilbo looks down upon the proceedings, is absolutely striking. It's somewhat diminished in the context of this discussion because those two chapters didn't abut one another. But had we discussed the previous chapter and this chapter together in the same week, we would be talking about that tonal shift. So I wanted to talk a little about that tonal shift anyway. And of course, narratively, it also allows us to jump ahead. We don't have to give an account of the closing hours of the battle. We don't have to give an account of, of how everything played out specifically. We get to jump from the most dramatic moment to the next most dramatic moment. And this is, it is easy, I think, to criticize authors for having characters, you know, be knocked out, having characters collapse into unconsciousness as a means of a leading time. But it is, we have to admit, narratively purposeful. It, it allows us to maintain pace in adversity. Now, arguably, we could have accomplished much the same thing just with the chapter break. We could just have jumped ahead to the end of the battle, had the narrator come in and said, now this is what happened, but that would have prevented that sense of ominous loss. One of the things that is accomplished by having Bilbo be rendered unconscious at the end of the previous chapter is that we, the readers, are given a point of access into this unfolding story. As Bilbo realizes that he is invisible, is rescued, is brought back because he is wanted. And then we get to Thorin's deathbed scene. Farewell, good thief, he said. I go now to the halls of waiting to sit beside my fathers until the world is renewed. Since I leave now all gold and silver and go where it is of little worth, I wish to part in friendship from you, and I would take back my words and deeds at the gate. Bilbo knelt on one knee, filled with sorrow. Farewell, king under the mountain, he said. This is a bitter adventure if it must end so, and not a mountain of gold can amend it. Yet I am glad that I have shared in your perils, that has been more than any Baggins deserves. No, said Thorin. There is more in you of good than you know, child of the kindly West. Some courage and some wisdom blended in measure. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. But sad or merry, I must leave it now. Farewell. Then Bilbo turned away, and he went by himself and sat alone, wrapped in a blanket. And whether you believe it or not, he wept until his eyes were red and his voice was hoarse. He was a kindly little soul. Indeed, 
It was long before he had the heart to make a joke again. A mercy it is, he said at last to himself, that I woke up when I did. I wish Thorin were living, but I'm glad that we parted in kindness. You are a fool, Bilbo Baggins, and you made a great mess of that business with the stone, and there was a battle in spite of all your efforts to buy peace and quiet. But I suppose you can hardly be blamed for that. This is it, as far as I'm concerned. This is the scene from the book. This is the entirety of this book. I adore Thorin's relationship with Bilbo. More generally, Bilbo's relationship with the company of dwarves as it evolves through the book. But, wow, it is stunning. And that paragraph from Thorin, I mean, is as much an encapsulation of Tolkien's worldview as you are ever, ever going to find. There is nothing so succinct in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, in the pages of his personal letters, in the pages of any of his other stories that, that speaks directly to what he holds valuable. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Now, there is a kind of simple criticism here that I do want to unpick, um, because we've seen no evidence in our time spent among the Dwarven company that they do not value food or cheer or song. In fact, if you think back to the Unexpected Party, we got a lot of food and cheer and song. But the key here is understanding the relationship between the things that Thorin is describing. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, not valued them for themselves, but valued them more than we value riches, then the world would be a merrier place. And he is there absolutely acknowledging his own dragon sickness and, in a more general sense, the frailty of dwarves and elves and man. He is acknowledging the spread of dragon sickness and the, the genuinely calamitous outcome that was narrowly averted by the eucatastrophic arrival of the goblins. He is taking responsibility there in part for his weakness, for his susceptibility, at least might be a better way of putting it. It is just an absolutely lovely, just, just, a, completely, uh, just a completely beautiful scene. I love it. Yes. Let me see here. Uh, so who is Thorin, Thorin's heir, says Lorraine. Well, we'll get to this, but yes, it's Dine. It's Dine from the Iron Hills. It's the leader of the dwarves of the Iron Hills. It uh, wouldn't have been. It would have been Feely, except that, as we'll learn very shortly, Feely and Keely also both died. The line of Thorin has basically been erased at this point. So Dine is going to be crowned king under the mountain. And as we will see, will actually be a magnanimous king. He will be the king that, that, you know, this part of the world deserves. He will restore Erebor to glory and, and rebuild an alliance of sorts between Erebor and Esgaroth and the elves of the Woodland Realm. Yeah. Yes, a lot of you are saying that this is your favorite Thorin scene. I mean, it's kind of tough because Thorin doesn't really get another fantastic scene. But even if he did, it's tough to imagine a scene. Uh, it's tough to imagine a scene beating this one. Um, yeah, good. Had Thorin taken the hall with dragon sickness upon him, says Andrea, uh, would that have caused the destruction of the man-elf-dwarf relationship in the area? Yeah, I mean, this is um, this is something to which we will allude later, and this is something that uh, the quest of Erebor makes absolutely clear. In fact, Gandalf makes this very clear in The Lord of the Rings itself. Whoops, excuse me, as I knock said book almost off my desk completely. Um with the um, <laughs> also knocked my train of thought completely off the desk. Yes, it would have been completely calamitous. It would have been completely calamitous 
in terms of, of local culture, but it also would have been the worst possible outcome um, had, uh, had the War of the Ring begun without stability in this part of the world. Things would have turned out very, very differently, and that would have been, yeah, good, good. Okay, the best Thorin scene, says Angela. Good, we're right there. Yes. Uh, Dine and Bane, Bard's son, do awesome stuff in The Lord of the Rings, says Errol. Yes, yes. Good. Oh, and we're talking, this is interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't even, uh, yeah, I hadn't even thought to discuss this, but you're absolutely right, of course. This is a, a death scene. This is a noble death scene contained within a children's story. Um, it's almost difficult to remember The Hobbit as a children's story at this point, because the last few chapters have been of such grand and and weighty scale um but you're absolutely right i think that that including this kind of death including this kind of a particularly a redemptive death you know thorin suffers from dragon sickness and that is terrible but it is crucial to remember that thorin does not repent on his deathbed he repents way prior to that because he casts down the gate and emerges in his golden splendor and rallies all the troops, not just the dwarves, but the elves and the men too, and charges the goblins. And while the charge falters, while it isn't completely definitively successful, and of course, while Thorin himself falls along with his nephews, Fili and Kili, it is still heroic. He has still cast off the dragon sickness before he is laid here to rest. Yeah. Good. Good. Would Thorin's line, asks uh, Josh Rooms here, would Thorin's line be saved if he didn't fall to dragon sickness? Would Thorin or Fili or Kili be ruling if things went differently? I mean, yes, Thorin would, well, I mean, mm, Thorin himself would have taken the crown. I mean, Thorin basically has taken the crown by the time that we arrive at the Battle of Three Armies. He is basically king under the mountain at that point, though without the Arkenstone and without the unified you know, fealty of the dwarves around him, not perhaps King of Erebor. That's a point of some interesting speculation. I've had a few emails about that in the course of the last week, too. Um, it's, it's difficult to be sure, given the context of this book, what kind of King Thorin would have been without the dragon sickness? He certainly seems to be noble, but then the dragon sickness becomes such an urgent part of his character, and as we know, a part of his line. You know, this is this is uh, a madness to which the, the dwarves of Thorin's line are somewhat particularly susceptible. So it's it's difficult to be certain what kind of of king he would have been. But yes, Thorin would have been king under the mountain. Yeah, good. Um, yeah. Yes, and, and calling out uh, Fili and Kili here. This has always been, I think, one of the most um, interesting points of speculation about Fili and Kili. We are told after Bilbo is cast out that some of the dwarves felt shame. I have always thought it a great pity that we are not told which dwarves felt shame. We're not told specifically where Fili and Kili are, emotionally speaking, by the time that Thorin banishes Bilbo. So I don't, I, I think that would be absolutely fascinating to know if they were counted among that number, if they were, if they were still, still capable of, of escaping the lure of the dragon sickness, or if they had fallen to it as hard as their uncle had. Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. Let's, um, the movie definitely makes the case for Balin feeling shame, says Bryce. It absolutely does. Yes, uh, the movie does a few things very well, and characterizing the dwarves, I would argue, is one of them. Yes. 
Akiva asks, now this is fascinating, is Thorin's failure to produce an heir a divine failure of his kingship? No, but only because Thorin was not king until the very end of this book, until he gets like five minutes. And there are, as far as we know, no female dwarves around, though I guess it's possible that Nori could be pregnant as we speak. We have no idea about that. But certainly it's it would have been considered medievally to be a failure of, of his his uh, his kingly virtue if he had failed to produce an heir, but because he was not king, he was king in exile. I think the rules are slightly different. I would certainly have expected Thorin to take a dwarven maid, take a dwarven wife, and father a, a brood of children, certainly. You would expect that to happen, particularly over the course of the centuries that Thorin has left to live. Yeah. Good. Oh, okay. Joshram says, I was more referring to the idea that the battle would have gone differently. Would they all have died if they did things differently? Who can say? Who can say? Um, possibly. I mean, still still, and all possibly. The host of goblins and wargs is intended to be formidable. It is absolutely intended to be incredibly dangerous. And if... One of the great virtues of the siege of Erebor is that the men and the elves and the dwarves are all armed. They are all ready to go. They are, they are, there's no comfort here. There's no rest or respite here. So they are all armed and ready to go at a moment's notice when the goblins suddenly attack. So arguably, had Thorin been more reasonable, even if these armies had marshaled here, they might have been less prepared for the assault of the goblins and thus may have faltered. They may not have been able to, to win the day and irrevocably change the east. Again, th there's almost something catastrophic about that too, right? Good. Good. Um, okay. Let's uh, let's keep going, guys, because we've done two slides and we've been here for 45 minutes. And admittedly, we don't have many slides to get through tonight, but we do have a few. So let's push on to, well, the actual laying to rest of Thorin and us, uh, our opportunity to catch up with uh, what happened during the battle. Actually, it was some days before Bilbo really set out. They buried Thorin deep beneath the mountain and Bard laid the Arkenstone upon his breast. There let it lie to the mountain falls, he said. May it bring good fortune to all his folk that dwell hereafter. Upon his tomb the elven king then laid Orchrist, the elvish sword that had been taken from Thorin in captivity. It is said in songs that it gleamed ever in the dark if foes approached, and the fortress of the dwarves could not be taken by surprise. There now Dian, son of Nyan, took up his abode, and he became king under the mountain, and in time many other dwarves gathered to his throne in the ancient halls. Of the twelve companions of Thorin, ten remained. Fili and Kili had fallen, defending him with shield and body, for he was their mother's elder brother. The others remained with Dian, for Dian dealt his treasure well. There was, of course, no longer any question of dividing the horde in such shares as had been planned, to Balin and Dwalin and Dori and Nori and Ori, and Owen and Glowin and Biffer and Boffer and Bomber, or to Bilbo. Yet a fourteenth share of all the silver and gold wrought and unwrought was given up to Bard, for Dian said, We will honour the agreement of the dead, and he has now the Arkenstone in his keeping. We see immediately that Dian is going to be a greater king. He is going to be a better king, which is one of the more hideous faults in the movie adaptation, where Diane, as played by Billy Connolly, is a figure of fun and ridicule. 
maybe not the strongest adaptive choice there. But here we learn immediately that Dain is going to be a good king under the mountain. He deals his treasure well, and he honors the uh, he honors the deal made with Bard, even though that is now apparently unnecessary. And we have to note too the detail that Bard is the one who places the Arkenstone upon Thorin's chest. This is a gesture of enormous, enormous respect, as is the giving of Orchrist too. Interesting that Thranduil took Orchrist from the Woodland Realm when he was coming to battle here, and perhaps appropriate that we might speculate that he himself used Orchrist during the battle. I say, interesting, there's a symmetry there to Thranduil using Orchrist during the Battle of Five Armies because Orchrist was wrought prior to the fall of Gondolin. It was used in the last great goblin war between the elves and the goblins. It was used in, in the most perilous time that the elves have faced. And now to see it used again in victory carries with it a certain poetry, carries with it a certain, a certain sense of, of value and weight. Yes. So it's incredibly touching. And we see, I think maybe, um, maybe I saw someone call this out. But I'm afraid if that is the case, I perhaps missed who it was that called it out. But yes, Philly and Killy had fallen defending him, Thorin, with shield and body, for he was their mother's elder brother. The, spe- uh, the specificity of for he was their mother's elder brother has been taken to imply a certain rift between Thorin and Philly and Killy, because, of course, it would also be appropriate to say that Philly and Killy died defending him with shield and body, for he was their king, rather than, you know, drawing this, this much more personal connection. So, yeah. 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 Good. All right. Yes. Dylan the Joel says, Billy Connolly hated that role and was outspoken about loathing it. I wonder if he would have liked it more had it been more true to this, Diane. Perhaps. Perhaps. Yes. Billy Connolly's comments about the Hobbit movies were, yeah, no, not, not great. Not great. Let's say that. Dealt his treasure well, says Jackie, something one can only say about a kingly dwarf. Yes. Though, I, I, as I said, you know, I do think that's foreshadowed. I do think it is fair to say, certainly he, he stole it. But in the surrendering of the Arkenstone, we may also say that Bilbo dealt his treasure well, that he actually tried to do good with the treasure itself. So it's possible. It's possible. Um, yeah. Good. <laughs> Lady Sorka says, Dine is a fascinating character if you read the histories too. He killed a goblin king at the age of 32. Gimli was considered too young to come along on the quest at age 68. Yes, he's precocious, that, that Dine. Say what you like, precocious. Yeah, good. All right, all right. Let's, uh, let's keep moving forward because we've got so much to talk about and we've got some songs to talk about before we're done tonight too. Um, in the end... Bilbo agrees to take a small measure of the dwarves' gratitude. In the end, he would only take two small chests, one filled with silver and the other with gold, such as one strong pony could carry. That would be quite as much as I can manage, said he. At last, the time came for him to say goodbye to his friends. Farewell, Balin, he said, and farewell, Dwalin, and farewell, Dory, Nori, Ori, Oe, Glowin, Biffer, Boffer, and Bomber. May your beards never grow thin. And turning back toward the mountain, he added, Farewell. Thorin Oakenshield, and Feely, and Keely, may your memory never fade. Then the dwarves bowed low before their gate, but words stuck in their throats. Goodbye, and good luck, whatever you fare, said Balin at last. If you ever visit us again when our halls are made fair once more, then the feast shall indeed be splendid. If ever you're passing my way, said Bilbo, don't wait to knock. Tea is at four, but any of you are welcome at any time. And then he turned away. This is 
I mean, touching, beautiful. It's it's poetic. It's exactly as it should be. Uh, Bilbo's final reunification with the dwarves, his final acceptance into their company, into their number, just in time for him to depart, is is genuinely touching. But I do think that we see something here that is even more important. What we see here in Bilbo's final offer is a new kind of unity of Baggins and Took. Bilbo was returning home. As we'll see in the course of the next chapter or so, he is eager. He is tired. He is worn out. He has seen wonders, but those wonders have exacted from him a price. And he wants rest. He wants comfort. He wants home. But even here under the mountain, as opposed to under the hill, his Turkish impulse is connected, is integrated now. He's going home and he's going to be comfortable. But you know what? It wouldn't be unwelcome for there to be another unexpected party. Anytime one of the dwarves is passing, they can come on in. Tea is at four, but you needn't even knock. Bilbo is drawing in his Tookishness, his Tookish spirit of adventure into his Baggins-ish life. And we're going to see, even as he returns, even in the last pages, the last page, in fact, of the novel, a much tighter integration than we've ever seen. And we're going to talk about why that integration may have occurred immediately prior to that, because the narrator gives us a very interesting hint. Um, We'll see how it all works out. Uh, Okay, so... Now we have just the last little moment of leaving behind leaving behind Erebor here. At last they came up the long road and reached the very pass where the goblins had captured them before. But they came to that high point at morning, and looking backward they saw a white sun shining over the outstretched lands. There behind lay Mirkwood, blue in the distance, and darkly green at the nearer edge, even in the spring. There, far away, was the lonely mountain on the edge of eyesight. On its highest peak, snow yet unmelted, was gleaming pale. So comes snow after fire, and even dragons have their ending, said Bilbo, and he turned his back on his adventure. The Turkish part was getting very tired, and the Baggins was daily getting stronger. I wish now only to be in my own armchair, he said. Bilbo has by this point passed much of the winter in the company of Beorn. He has passed a a merry yuletide, we are told, and into the spring, but he is now reaching that threshold once more. And we talked on the outward journey about the significance of the Misty Mountains as a dividing line between the West and the Wild. We talked about that a lot. And then we talked about the ways in which Beorn was representative of, of a kind of fractious relationship between the West and the Wild, that there is an element of civility, an element of comfort, an element of even as 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 hermit-like as he may be, Beorn still demonstrates uh, still demonstrates an impulse toward society, at least of a sort. It's interesting that on the way back, Bilbo finds Beorn's house to be enormously comfortable. He doesn't find it to be strange or peculiar. But as we see here, when he returns still further and reaches that threshold, as he crosses the Misty Mountains, as he returns from the wild into the West for the first time in the better part of a year, that is the point where he turns his back on his adventure. So though he is comfortable at Bayorns and though he enjoys his time there a great deal from what we're told in the book, that is still adventure. That is still the wild. That is still Tukish. It's at this point 
that his his Begins-ish self begins to return to dominance. You know, now he has returned to the West. Now he has crossed the Misty Mountains again. He bids a final farewell to Erebor in the in the grim distance and passes back into metaphorically speaking, the mundane realm. Now he is leaving fairy behind. He is leaving behind the grand adventure and excitement of the world unknown, the world unseen. Now he is returning to normalcy. Now he is returning to mundanity. Now he is returning to tea is at four and, and seed cakes and all the other pleasures of home, the comforts of home. Yes. And Elrond, as Jackie says, has handkerchiefs. So he's much more civilized. Yeah, of course, it's that's part of the the... That, that point of transition, I, I feel as though if I were writing a book with this as a central thesis, this kind of geographical threshold between the West and the wild, you know, if I was, if I was doing this, if I was, I, I can't even say the sentence out loud without cringing at it. But if I were giving Tolkien editorial advice, I would be tempted to collapse the threshold. I would be tempted to, to draw it down to a single definitive moment. But as we discussed at the time, there isn't a single definitive moment. It's partly the arrival at Rivendell, and it's partly the departure from Rivendell, and it's partly the crossing of the Misty Mountains, and it's partly being captured by the goblins, and it's partly Bilbo bursting from the back door of the goblin town, scattering brass buttons everywhere. He exists in that liminal state, in that that state between worlds, for far longer than we might imagine. But on the return journey, we're presented with this sharp moment of, of transformation. Here in the morning, as the sun is rising, he's looking toward the east. He's looking toward the Lonely Mountain. He bids it farewell and says that all he wants is his armchair. Here we seem to have a very firm threshold. This is a very tight threshold. But Bilbo is about to arrive at Rivendell. He's about to spend some time at Rivendell in the company of elves, which says potentially some really interesting things about how Bilbo's perspective on what is West and what is wild may have changed. His sense of mundanity, his sense of, of normalcy has expanded now to encompass Rivendell, the last homely house, which is extraordinary in its way, is, is beautiful and speaks to one of the lasting consequences of Bilbo's adventure here. Yeah. Uh, Bilbo's, Bilbo, welcome, welcome, oh, blah, blah, blah. excuse me, I'm getting tangled up in my own words. So excited am I to read this Twitter message from Death or Glory Toad. Bilbo welcomes the dwarves for tea this time, closes the loop with the unruly, unexpected beginning. Yes, of course, and we will specifically close that loop uh, textually, structurally, right at the very end of the book. Yes. Do we know if Bilbo and any of the dwarves ever meet up again, says uh, Librarian Val? Well, we know that Balin drops in right at the end of the book. He spends time there with Gandalf. Um... That's the only one that I can think of for sure. I'm wondering if there's a reference in in the Council of Elrond to... Hmm, not that I can think of. Not that I can think of. Most of the dwarves stay in Erebor. Uh, there are some diasporic elements here, but we'll, we'll talk about those at another time, I think. Yeah, yeah. Good. All right. The back again is expanded a, expanded a lot by the addition of the Lord of the Rings, says Errol. Yes, yes, that's right. Good, good. There are more thresholds than the Lord of the Ring Return of the King has endings. I'm going to defend the endings of the Return of the King, I tell you what. Yeah, good, good. Yes, and of course, all of this ties back to our very first session here on There and Back Again, where we talked about Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, because as Tolkien points out within the structure of that essay, fairy stories are not stories about fairies. That's almost never the case. 
Fairy stories are about mortals who interact with the realm of fairy. And looking at Bilbo's adventure as one giant fairy story, the return is absolutely crucial because you cannot remain in fairy, you know, which I'm not sure that this was intentional. I'm not, I mean, evidently this, this section was not terribly transformed by the revised edition that came out prior to the Lord of the Rings. So this was already kind of in, in concept. This was already in Tolkien's thoughts, but uh, Bilbo's normalizing of Rivendell, his, his, his expanding border of, of civility to encompass Rivendell and all the lands of the West allows him to return to Rivendell at the end of his life and, and to be peaceful there and to be joyous there until he passes into the West. So yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. Let's, um, Lobelia stole his spoons while well, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but sure. <laughs> um, Glowin is at the Council of Elrond. Of course he is. Glowin's right there. You're absolutely right. Okay, good. Um, is it possible that Bilbo met Aragorn and befriended, befriended him in his second pass of Rivendell? Um, is it possible? No. Aragorn wouldn't have been born yet. Or no, Aragorn wouldn't have been born yet. Oh, you know what's happening now is that I'm getting my movie timeline and my book timeline mixed up. Hmm. Yes, possibly. He would have been young, though. He would have been maybe nine, ten years old, something like that. Um, possibly. I'll need to look into that and double check my dates because I'm not at all sure that I'm right. But yes, <laughs> that sounds right. That sounds right to me. Okay. Yes, he would have, says Jackie. Okay. Yes. Ten. Okay. So Shane says Aragorn would have been like three. Jackie says ten. Lady Sorka says twelve. Jackie says maybe eleven. I'm thinking somewhere, somewhere around there. Somewhere, yes, ten or eleven. I think. Um, yes, yes. Of course, he wasn't going by the name Aragorn at the time. Good. All right. Let's. Um, so since we've spent so much time talking about the elves, I guess we should get to the elves, and I guess we should get to the elves' song here. This is the song they sing as he returns to Rivendell. The dragon is withered, his bones are now crumbled, his armor is shivered, his splendor is humbled. Though short, excuse me, though swords shall be rusted and thrown and crown perish, with strength that men trusted and wealth that they cherish, here grass is still growing and leaves are yet swinging, the white water flowing, the elves are yet singing, come tra la 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 come back to the valley. The stars are far brighter than gems without measure, the moon is far whiter than silver in treasure, the fire is more shining on hearth in the gloaming than gold won by mining, so why go a-roaming? Oh, tra la 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 come back to the valley. Oh, where are you going so late in returning? The river is flowing, the stars are all burning, oh, whither so laden, so sad and so dreary, here elf and elf maiden now welcome the weary with tra la la come back to the valley, tra la la fa la la fa la Obviously, this ties back to the tra la la song that we got when Bilbo first arrived in Rivendell. But here we see, well, we see a very different perspective. Once again, the elves apparently have the best intelligence network in Middle-earth. They have apparently determined exactly what has happened in the East of East. They know exactly uh, uh, what happened to Smaug, and they're kind of being playful about it. But their message, their core message, remains the same. The stars are far brighter than gems without measure. The moon is far whiter than silver in treasure. The fire is more shining on hearth and the gloaming than gold won by mining, so why go a-roaming? 
And then in that last pair of stanzas, where are you going so late and returning? The river is flowing. The stars are all burning. Oh, whither so laden, so sad and so dreary. Here, elf and elf maiden, now welcome the weary. Whither so laden with your chests of gold and silver? Here we see again that though battle consumed the desolation of Smaug, though friends were lost, though time has passed, though a great evil has been vanquished, though civility has been restored, the hope of unity and alliance restored to the desolation of Smaug. All of these things have happened, but the elves are still here because the stars are still burning and the river is still flowing. The pleasures of existence, the pleasures of life, the pleasures of right here and right now remain of preeminent importance. You know, the elves here are here more so than the dwarves ever could be, more so than the men of Esgaroth ever could be, or even it would seem to be the wild woodland elves, less wise and more dangerous, as we were told. Yeah. This song, says Bryce, really reflects Thorin's last words to Bilbo. Yes, absolutely. I think that we see here a returning, as we see a return to comfort, we're seeing that um, we're seeing that that Thorin's plea, you know, for, for uh, Thorin's plea for civility, effectively. You know, Thorin, when Thorin refers to Bilbo as a child of the kindly West, you know, he's directly referencing that that division between West and Wild. He's well aware. He's been there. He knows. He knows that there's a difference between these two things, and that the West is a gentler land. So he's directly kind of referencing this kind of comfort, but also joy, also fulfillment. That It's not adventuresome, perhaps, in the same way, but it is still wondrous. So there is a reference to that in Thorin's uh, final words to Bilbo. And yes, certainly, that's the song that the elves have been singing all along. And for all we know, may still be singing, may still be singing today. Yes. Oh, uh, let me see here what Jackie said. I love the idea of Estelle, of Aragorn, Estelle sneaking out of bed to catch a glimpse of Bilbo and Gandalf and Rivendell. That's pretty great. And then Jim replied, that made me think of Sam's childlike response to the elves to, oh, Sam. It's going to be good. It's going to be good, you guys. We're going to talk about the Fellowship of the Ring. It's going to be fantastic. If you don't already love Sam, then yeah, yeah. Wow. And we're doing math about Aragorn's actual age here. So probably 11 when Bilbo got back, says Errol. Okay. I'll take it. Yeah. Good. Good. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Let's, um, <laughs> as Gene says, Lord of the Rings is going to be a great Sam love fest constantly. Sam Hart. Completely agree. Completely agree. And then we have the, uh, once again, Bilbo spends happy time at Rivendell. He is reintegrating step by step by step. You know, he's reintegrating at, at first of all, at Bayorns, then by crossing the mountains, now at Rivendell. Again and again, step by step, he kind of telescopes back into his smaller life. And that's no bad thing because he now carries more with him. He encompasses more now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Librarian Val says, um, I've always found it interesting that the West is civilized in Tolkien as compared to how America was settled in the opposite way. That is actually a key distinction. Um, there was a paper that I read once. I have no hope of tracking this down. 
I will try and track this down. If I can find it, then I will share it with you all on Twitter. But I did read a paper once about exactly that kind of uh, geographical bias about uh, fantasy stories where the West is good and the East is bad are generally like Western European fantasy stories. Fantasy stories where the East is good and the West is bad are generally American fantasy stories. And there are divisions too about North and South and uh, and, and, and about how we kind of draw those dividing lines. Yes, it, it is fascinating. But those kind of geographical uh, constants it's certainly something that Tolkien was mindful of, of course, when he began writing The Hobbit, when he began creating Arda, it was as a kind of prehistory for our real world. So when he's writing about the Shire, it's not fair to say that the Shire is completely analogous for England, but it's also not fair to say that it isn't. It's also not fair to say that there's no connection there whatsoever. And certainly, if you look at a map of Europe, you look at a map of Middle Earth, you're going to see some connections. There are some similarities there. There are some 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 uh, echoes there, even by the time that Tolkien had pretty much left the idea of ancient prehistory behind. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Sarah says, seriously, on the Lord of the Rings reread, I was like, see, Bilbo, bye-bye. Yeah. Good. All right. Oh no, Rachel now, now adds to this this expanding uh, fan fiction story about uh, young Estelle, young Aragorn overhearing uh, or watching uh, Bilbo and Gandalf return from the east and Gandalf grabbing tiny Aragorn like, have you been eavesdropping? Pretty terrible, pretty terrible heartbreak happening right now. Yes, good. Okay, um, so let's share this slide as we leave Rivendell behind. Even as they left the valley, the sky darkened in the west before them, and wind and rain came up to meet them. Merry is Maytime, said Bilbo as the rain beat into his face. But our back is to legends, and we're coming home. I suppose this is the first taste of it. There is a long road yet, said Gandalf. But it is the last road, said Bilbo. They came to the river that marked the very edge of the borderland of the wild and to the ford beneath the steep bank, which you may remember. The water was swollen both with the melting of the snows at the approach of summer and with the day-long rain, but they crossed with some difficulty and pressed forward as evening fell on the last stage of their journey. The return to wind and rain. It may make us think of the divine wind. It may make us think of the, the, the celestial wind, which the dwarves described in their song that blows from west to east. And here it is blowing from west to east still. And though Bilbo has his back to legends, legends are still out there and the wind is still blowing. So there's some interesting similarity there. But of course, I think we're primarily supposed to see this as part of this return to normalcy, part of this return to mundanity. Well, we're heading home and it's raining. The weather's kind of crappy and we're just going to do the thing. We're just going to continue walking. This is the last road. We're almost there. So it, it's poetic in its way, but also we're seeing this stripping away of poetry. We're seeing the stripping away of, of, of metaphor almost because in the wild, even in that, that liminal state between, we're seeing the metaphor made real. We're, we're exploring things like Bayorn's house or the Eagle's Eyrie or Mirkwood or the realm of the Elven King. We're seeing these fantastical metaphorical things made real. And that's now happening less and less and less as we progress backward, backward, backward. So um, we also end up with uh, the trolls and the troll gold too, which supplements the, uh, the income that Bilbo has recovered. But then... We come to the real end of the journey and Bilbo's song. As all things come to an end, even this story, 
A day came at last when they were in sight of the country where Bilbo had been born and bred, where the shapes of the land and of the trees were as well known to him as his hands and toes. Coming to a rise, he could see his own hill in the distance, and he stopped suddenly and said, Roads go ever, ever on, over rock and under tree, by caves which never sun has shone, by streams that never find the sea, over snow by winter sown, and through the merry flowers of June, over grass and over stone, and under mountains in the moon. Roads go ever, ever on, under cloud and under star, yet feet that wandering have gone turn at last to home afar, eyes that fire and sword have seen and horror in the halls of stone. Look at last on meadows green, and trees and hills they long have known. Gandalf looked at him. My dear Bilbo, he said, something is the matter with you. You are not the hobbit that you were. A few people are calling out here that uh, this is their favorite song, and I completely agree. I completely agree that this is their, this is my favorite song too. And as we've discussed before, we will discover in the pages of The Lord of the Rings that Bilbo has in fact become famous for his poetry, that poetry is his thing. Our prosy Mr. Baggins is now at least partly a poetical took. This is almost, almost the first poem that Bilbo writes. It's not the first poem that Bilbo writes because as you may remember, Bilbo throws together a few scattered verses while fighting the spiders in Mirkwood. But those are extemporaneous and those are those are called upon by by dire exigency this is a composed poem this is a poem that is representative of bilbo's current emotional state it's not just intended to achieve an effect it is intended to be art and it's breathtaking it's beautiful and speaks to of course to this desire to go home the road goes ever ever on we're not talking about the, the, the traveler, we're not talking about the, the hero, we're not talking about the hobbit on a quest. The road goes ever on and on, but feet that wandering have gone turn at last to home afar. So the road goes ever, ever on, and the feet turn aside. The feet carry the wanderer home. Eyes that fire and sword have seen and horror in the halls of stone Look at last on meadows green and trees and hills they long have known. And we see here, I think, a slight separation for Bilbo. And this is perhaps arguably a sign of, of additional maturity or at least increased perspective. Because what we don't do is conclude this poem with, and I'm going to have some bacon and listen to my kettle whistle on the hearth. We don't call back to those those symbols of comfort and civility to which Bilbo has been cleaving throughout the entire quest. These are the symbols that have been giving him strength, giving his Baggins-ish side strength throughout the entire quest. They have been the symbols of home. But he's not thinking about that. He's thinking about the land. He's thinking about the place. Home is more than a singing tea kettle and bacon. It is more than comfort. It is, in part, belonging. And this is, I think, a theme of the book. He has restored the dwarves their home. He has returned them to their home, to the place where they belong. And now he himself is returning to the place where he belongs. The dwarves have their mountain. He has his hill. This is one of the themes which is made absolutely explicit, absolutely 
you know, sledgehammer explicit in the movie adaptations, but, but in principle, at least, I think it works really rather beautifully. So here he is thinking less of comfort, less of the traditionally Baggins-ish qualities, and more simply of home and of belonging. Yeah, good. Um, yes, Errol says, Bilbo, who was 50 at the start of his journey, has matured so much on this adventure. 50, barely a child. Yes. <laughs> Bilbo spit into verse, the Hobbit is ripe for a Lin-Manuel Miranda to make a musical. Bryce, you can't say that on the internet, man. You can't say that on the internet where I can read it and it'll get my hopes up. Yes, obviously Lin-Manuel Miranda should write a Hobbit musical. I am so very, very in for that. Yes. As Dylan picks up, there's a million things I haven't done. And frankly, I'm okay with that. I really do like my kitchen. I kind of want a t-shirt that just says that on it now. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Road trips can change you if you let them, says Becca. Wise, wise words. And we learn, of course, in fact, let's, uh, let's skip ahead to this next slide and we will learn exactly how the road trip has changed Mr. Bilbo Baggins. The return of Mr. Bilbo Baggins created quite a disturbance, both under the hill and over the hill and across the water. It was a great deal more than a nine days wonder. The legal bother indeed lasted for years. It was quite a long time before Mr. Baggins was, in fact, admitted to be alive again. The people who had got specially good bargains at the sale took a deal of convincing, and in the end, to save time, Bilbo had to buy back quite a lot of his own furniture. Many of his silver spoons mysteriously disappeared and were never accounted for. Personally, he suspected the Sackville Bagginses. On their side, they never admitted that the returned Baggins was genuine, and that they were not on friendly terms with Bilbo ever after. They really had wanted to live in his nice hobbit hole so very much. Indeed, Bilbo found he had lost more than spoons. He had lost his reputation. It is true that forever after he remained an elf friend and had the honor of dwarves, wizards, and all such folk as ever passed that way, but he was no longer quite respectable. He was, in fact, held by all the hobbits of the neighborhood to be queer, except by his nephews and nieces on the Took side, and even they were not encouraged in their friendship by their elders. When we begin the... Uh, Lord of the Rings, when we begin looking at the Fellowship of the Ring, we will look at exactly how Bilbo's return, how Bilbo's journey there and back again changed Hobbit culture in the Shire, because there are some very, very interesting clues about the effect of Bilbo's teachings, the effect of the story itself, which surrounds Bilbo. I love the callback here to, uh, to the rhetorical question, which the uh, narrator asked us right at the beginning of the book. You shall see whether he gained anything. And he did. He did gain a great deal, though he did lose his reputation. Bilbo has become too large now for the Shire to completely encompass. He has become too large now for Bag End to hold. He is too great a figure to be completely reacclimatized into mainstream Hobbit culture. That is the curse of greatness. That is the curse of the exceptional individual. He has been transformed as all who venture into fairy are transformed. There's always a price. There's always a consequence of contact with fairy. And the very best that you can hope for, the very best that you can hope for is that you will be rendered greater, either metaphorically greater, greater in terms of courage and perspective, as Bilbo certainly is, or in some cases, literally greater 
as with Merry and Pippin at the end of The Lord of the Rings. So Bilbo has returned, but can never completely reintegrate. There will always be the touch of adventure on him. There will always be the scar of adventure on him. He will always carry this burden. Returning home, says Peter, only goes to show how much you have outgrown it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Good. Can't wait for the expected party, says Robert Haycock. Such a different flavor from the unexpected party. I, I like it. I like it much more. I like it very well. Yes, good. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and Cedar Heights here points out, I love that it's spoons, not something more threatening, such as forks or knives. The, the, there is a school of thought, I think, in criticism of The Hobbit that looks ominously at the Sackville Bagginses, because when we return and the sale is underway and Bilbo has been declared legally dead and they are trying to snatch up all of his possessions and all of his belongings, there is, I think, a, a strain of critical thought that suggests that this is supposed to be a reflection of the dragon sickness that we encountered in the East, that even here in the Shire, greed has taken hold. Even here in the Shire, terrible people want to acquire more and more and more. And I, I think that if that's the case, then we're supposed to interpret it ominously. We're supposed to look upon it with a certain, a certain discomfort. But for me, me, if it is a parallel being drawn, it's pretty clearly a parallel that is almost satirical in nature, that by emphasizing the utter mundanity of the Sackville Bagginses, the, the absolute prosaic, you know, harmlessness of the Sackville Bagginses, oh, did they steal, steal some spoons? I'm terribly sorry. And then in that last line of that paragraph, uh, they were not on friendly terms with Bilbo ever after. They really had wanted to live in his nice hobbit hole so very much. To me, rather than ominous, rather than suggestive, that reads to me as pretty much a joke. That reads to me as pretty much satire, that, that Bilbo has journeyed into the East. He has faced terrors under the mountain, and he has returned. And this is like the Shire version of this. This is the, you know, the, the PG-rated version of all that he has experienced in, in the wild. So for me, I read that in, in a much more comedic fashion, but yes, yes. Um, it's interesting, though, that for Hobbit's wealth is spoons and mundane things rather than gold and silver, says Rachel. And I think that's true, though, not simply the spoons presumably for their own purpose, for their own sake. The spoons have a function. The, the house has a function. The, the furniture has a function. There's really, until Bilbo, there's no sense of Hobbit's acquiring treasure. There's almost no sense, in The Hobbit at least, of, of Hobbit's having or knowing about money, I guess. Uh, some kind of barter system, presumably, but again, Tolkien doesn't care about the economics. Yes. Spoon, says Dylan, is a word like Tuesday and 42. It's just intrinsically funny, especially when treated as exceptionally important. I'm inclined to agree. Yes. The Ocean Palace says stealing spoons, clearly a first world problem. That's it. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Yes, we, we will swing around. And of course, like everything in the Shire, like every single incidental detail of the Shire, it's going to be expanded radically when we get to the Lord of the Rings. We're going to have such a better sense in the Lord of the Rings, yes. And then the version of this that we get in the Lord of the Rings is much darker, is much more serious. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, and then we're going to wrap up because I'm almost out of time for tonight. Let's wrap up with our last slide for The Hobbit, with the last page of The Hobbit, with the last reading. Here we go. This is after many, many years later, Balin and Gandalf have shown up. 
The new master is of wiser kind, said Balin. Very popular, too, for, of course, he gets most of the credit for the present prosperity. They're making songs which say that in his day the rivers run with gold. Then the prophecies of the old songs have turned out to be true after a fashion, said Bilbo. Of course, said Gandalf. And why should they not prove true? Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck just for your sole benefit? You're a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you. But you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world, after all. Thank goodness, said Bilbo, laughing, and handed him the tobacco jar. This is how we conclude The Hobbit, with a return, superficially at least, to absolute conventional Hobbit life. We're sitting around, we're talking, we're smoking, we're passing the tobacco jar, we're glad to be small in a wide, wide world, except for the fact that one of these people is a wizard and one of these people is a dwarf. Bilbo has managed, at the last, to completely integrate his token bag and sides. He has managed to find not a balancing point between them, it would seem to me, not a compromise, certainly, between them, but an actual unity. Here he manages to embody all of his Baggins-ish impulse and all of his Tookish impulse too. We're no longer mediating between the two. We have found resolution. We have found a kind of peace and we have found it in the drawing room. The other part here that I love and which is a little suggestive to me um, is Balin talking about the new master and how the people of Lake Town are already singing songs about how great the new master is and hey, the rivers flowed with gold in his time. And I wonder to what degree Tolkien is making a point here that the story, a story, has two possible futures. Stories can resolve into history, which is flat and biased and manipulatable. Or stories can collapse into myth. They can collapse in such a way as the factual elements remain known and the point is lost. Or the opposite is true. Some of the factual elements may be lost, but the truth remains. The point remains. The focal point of the story in the first place still has power and weight. And what we're seeing in Lake Town is the building of a history. And what we're seeing here, gathered around the fire with friends and pipes and fireplace, you know, the fireplace crackling as, as things get quiet outside. And perhaps, perhaps some gardener is just outside of the window, trimming the hedge, cutting the grass. As these people gather together and tell their stories and share their camaraderie, we're seeing the birth of myth, not of history. And those two things are very different. And this is a thought that came late to me in this current reading of The Hobbit, and I haven't really unpicked it a lot. So I may talk about this more when we do the Q&A session, because, um, because it does seem to me suggestive that there is a difference between history and myth in, in Tolkien's understanding of the world, and that one might be true but thin, and one might be less true, but rich and deep and powerful and potent. So I need to think more about this, but that's where I am on that particular topic right now. And of course, we have to acknowledge Gandalf's perspective on prophecy and on Bilbo's luck, acknowledging that Bilbo is just uh, someone very small in a very wide world. Does he imagine that all of his incredible luck was engineered simply so that he might survive? Well, 
That seems all but impossible. And certainly our reading of Eucatastrophe to this point suggests that no, that is not the case at all. Rather, it is the case that Bilbo has been an agent of Eucatastrophe, an agent of providence or of grace, that he is somehow put to use to engender the best possible outcome. Again, that is something that we will have in mind as we move through the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're quoting already lines from the very end of The Lord of the Rings, and guys, I'm not emotionally prepared to do that right now, so I think we're just, I'm, I'm going to skip over that here in the YouTube chat and not talk about, like, the last page of The Lord of the Rings, which is another of those moments where I will probably weep. Yes, good. <laughs> I really want a, uh, I do really want a uh, uh, Hobbit Hamilton crossover now. I really want that thing to happen. Good. Um, oh, Skipa says, I also appreciate the lack of talk about the ring during the end. No cliffhangers, no game changers, no teasers to a sequel. You're absolutely right. It's extremely restrained. Yes. Yes. The old gaffer might have been the gardener, albeit probably fairly young at this point. Yes, he was at this point the young gaffer. <laughs> Um, yeah, Lady Sorka is quoting history became legend, legend became myth. Mm. I, I definitely need to think about this more. This, this literally occurred to me today as I was thinking about The Hobbit, and, and I haven't really had time to formulate it yet, and I certainly haven't had time to find, uh, to find textual evidence or counter evidence for it or against it, but, but hmm, there is something. There is something, and I think we're going to be able to talk about this actually very fruitfully in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring as we're looking at different perspectives. Basically, at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, we get two different perspectives on Hobbit culture. We get one from the older generation and one from the younger generation, and they are they are looking at similar things in very different ways. And I'm kind of very curious about how that relates back to the telling of stories and the, the creation of myth and legend. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Tobacco in a kid's story, says the Ocean Palace. Yes. Well, you know, one of the reasons that we uh, switched out to pipe weed. It's not better. That's not better. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Good. Okay. Let's, um, good, good. Let's wrap it up there. Let's actually, um, because it is, oh yeah, I'm almost out of time. Okay, let's share this last slide and recap our plans because we are going to talk about The Hobbit more. And what I want to do in this Hobbit Q&A is I want to have a, a mix of nitpicky questions like, hey, what about this? Why did this happen? Why Bjorn at the Battle of Five Armies? What's up with that? Why did the Eagles count as an army? All of that good stuff. Get in touch with me with those questions, but then also get in touch with me with the biggest questions. Let me know what you think of the thesis statements of The Hobbit, what you think of the themes and the, the arguments made by The Hobbit. Get in touch and let me know about all of that. And then if you have access to Unfinished Tales, do read The Quest of Erebor. If you don't have access to Unfinished Tales, Go read Appendix, I want to say Appendix A, I think it's Appendix A in The Lord of the Rings. Just go find the part where Gandalf's talking about the quest of Erebor and, and read that. Um, it's of Durin's folk, you'll be able to find it that way. Just read that, that's pretty much the same thing. We'll talk about the quest of Erebor, we'll talk about The Hobbit in a larger context, and then we will take some Q&A. That is 9pm Eastern, Thursday, April 20th. That is not this coming Thursday, that is a week on Thursday. I am taking this coming Thursday off. So 9pm Eastern, Thursday, April 20th. 2017. And then I should say we are going straight into the uh, Fellowship of the Ring the following week. So we'll begin the Fellowship of the Ring on April 27th. And I believe, if I can call up my schedule here so I can actually tell you, we are going to spend um, something like 18 weeks 
going over just fellowship. So we're going to spend more time on on the first third of The Lord of the Rings than we did on The Hobbit in its entirety. We're going to slow down the reading pace just a little bit because there is just simply so much more depth. So that's how we're going to cover The Fellowship of the Ring. Guys, it has been an absolute pleasure talking about The Hobbit with you. I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have. I was going to go into Bilbo's bit there from the beginning of The Lord of the Rings, but I'm not going to do that because we'll get a chance to talk about that in two weeks' time when we get to The Fellowship of the Ring and the expected party as opposed to the unexpected party. Um, we are going to, uh, as I say, take this week off, then we'll talk about The Hobbit in the Q&A session, then we'll talk about Fellowship of the Ring. It's going to be a blast. I can't wait to get into this all with you. Thank you so much for accompanying me through the pages of The Hobbit. If you have questions, you can tag them on Twitter using T-A-B again, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N, or better yet, probably your best bet at this point, is to email me directly, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. Email me with your thoughts, email me with your questions, email me with your topics, and I will see what I can do to put together uh, a raucous and, and wild show for uh, for our last Hobbit discussion, I guess, uh, a week on Thursday. Guys, thank you all so, so much for your time. I appreciate you being here this evening, and I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, take care. Take care.